0: Welcome to the QUT Institute for Future Environments podcast series. In this podcast, we feature an IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture delivered by Professor Ron Arkin. Professor Arkin is Regents Professor and Director of the Mobile Robot Laboratory at Georgia Institute of Technology. Professor Arkin's lecture, entitled Lethal Autonomous Robots and the Plight of the Non-Combatant, took place at QUT's Gardens Point Campus in Brisbane, on Monday, 31st of July, 2017. We hope you enjoy this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture.
1: I hope to share some thoughts which may stimulate you, perhaps, or provoke you. I don't know uh, what the case uh, will be. Well, I suspect it may be both. Uh, And I'll be talking about work I've been doing only later in my career, since about 2006, I guess, is when it started. I've been a roboticist for over 30 years. and I could tell you a little bit about the history of what got me into the ethics side of things, but by and large, it's just the recognition that our community was beginning to succeed, and our work was actually getting out of the laboratory and doing things perhaps in unexpected or unintended ways, and you have two choices as a roboticist, or as an engineer, or whatever your discipline has to be. You can stick your head in the sand and say that's somebody else's problem, or you can say I'm partly responsible for the successes that the community is having, try and help uh, to make sure that the technology is used in an appropriate way. Now, I've been working with the Department of Defense. I only do unclassified research, uh, so this is, and it's only one component of my research. So I can talk freely about anything uh, that I do. Uh, But I have been engaged in helping to guide policy and other things as well, too, with this particular technology. So there's two underlying assumptions with this particular piece of research, which started about 2006, with a grant from the Army Research Laboratories. It was my smallest Department of Defense grant ever. Uh, by far, smaller than most national science foundations, but it's probably had the most impact uh, of all the grants that I've had uh, as well uh, in terms of uh, both controversy and stimulating uh, the discussion worldwide uh, about this particular research. There's two underlying assumptions uh, with this work. One unfortunately, is that warfare will continue. For those of you who are pacifists out there, I would strongly encourage you to continue to fight the good fight, Uh, but I uh, am not necessarily convinced that we will be successful uh, in that endeavor. And given such, we have to be prepared uh, for the consequences associated uh, with war. And so if we make that particular assumption, then the question is what, how, when, where should robotics technology potentially be used? That's what I'm really addressing in this case. Now, the military, your military as well, I've worked alongside Australian uh, Navy at uh, ONR and NRL a research grant in, back in the United States uh, and the like as well too, and I know some of your colleagues uh, and the Defense Sciences Technology Office is here, or Disto or DTO, I don't know which one it happens to be. I've been in communication with them and hope to meet with them here as well too, uh, regarding this technology. So Australian is in the mix, is a good way to describe it, in terms of developing these kinds of systems, perhaps not lethal, but uh, certainly the use of autonomous uh, platforms for surveillance and other things. The reason why the military is interested is at least these particular reasons. One is the fact that you could have one warfighter potentially do more than many warfighters and this is important in a nation where you might have a draft. Uh, if you want an all-volunteer army, you might have to keep a lean and so-called mean uh, a, a military force to be able to do that and if one soldier can accomplish what four soldiers could uh, before leveraging this technology, that's an important uh, game from an economic perspective as well too. Uh, Expand the battle space is where you fight over larger areas for longer periods of time. Uh, Unmanned vehicles, as you may know, can stay up for days at a time. Pilots have to eat, they have to go to the bathroom, uh, they have to sleep. Uh, That doesn't work so well for the kinds of loitering missions that you might like to have over a particular area. And you can fight over large areas. The program that the Aussies were engaged with was something called broad area maritime surveillance, which we were dealing with in the Navy. You've got a lot of maritime area around this country as well, too. And you were concerned with, how are we going to be able to patrol that effectively? For whatever reasons. Uh, and uh, that was one of the goals. How can you do that? And for the individual warfighter, how could you see further around the corner, perhaps, or reach further, perhaps engage an enemy around the corner without putting yourself necessarily at uh, excessive risk? All those are reasons which the military, of course, was inter- uh, interested in reducing their own casualties. So that's an important aspect uh, of war fighting. But the use, the use of AI and robotics, at least when I started this work, uh, really didn't play much of a role in dealing with uh, protecting non-combatants. And largely what I'll be talking about today, the motivation for this work, is dealing with the protection of non-combatants and reducing non-combatant casualties. Now, nations many nations <laughs> any nation that's capable of doing it is using military robots at this particular point in time many of which uh, are armed uh, and capable uh, of engaging uh, targets south korea had one of the more advanced which they deploy temporarily at the demilitarized zone uh, i'll talk a little bit more about that platform later in the scenario that we have uh, other uh, other ones of course israel has uh, initially tested, I believe now, have deployed uh, along the uh, Gaza Strip uh, robot platforms which have protective shields which can engage targets conceivably, uh, automatically. Uh, you're familiar with the Avenger, El uh, Rasm, which is this, uh, this is the newest one uh, as well too, just uh, the Pentagon's finally bought those. Those were experimental and it was causing a lot of concern uh, in the... Uh, NGO community, Human Rights Watch, and others as well, too, with respect to the capabilities that has of being able to pick out its own targets from a set of targets uh, without necessarily human confirmation. Um, And a variety of others as well, too. The Avenger C, actually, which was supposed to be the successor for that, is actually not going to be the successor for the Reaper uh, and Predator uh, that we had, for other reasons. But if you want your own, Take home lethal autonomous weapon system. Uh, you can go on the internet uh, and uh, get one if your country will allow you to buy it, I guess is, is the key thing uh, 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 as well. Um, this has multiple sensor platforms. It has multiple weapon systems that you could put on. It also features autonomous detection and manual slash autonomous firing with safety. I'm not even sure what that means, uh, but uh, nonetheless, there are systems out there that Other nations, for example, smaller nations perhaps, who want to get into the game, if you will, and enhancing their military and have the dollars to be able to do that, conceivably can uh, get in without necessarily having a large overhead uh, in terms of building a research program. Israel, for example, is one of the largest exporters of these systems. Uh, The Harpy system has been deployed to many different countries, uh, and that is a fire-and-forget loitering missile system that waits for a radar to come on And then, without necessarily asking, a human being can home in and engage that particular thing and destroy it uh, fully autonomously uh, at some point. The United States has been in this game uh, for a while, if it is a game. Uh, This was from a report in 2009. Uh, This is just a list of force-bearing systems, the unclassified force-bearing systems. That means they have, often, the ability to uh, uh, project kinetic energy weapons uh, into uh, the battle space. Some are research qualified, some are actually deployed, uh, but the list is large, and it's probably significantly larger uh, since then. And if you include systems that are not, uh, that are used by perhaps special forces and others as well too, uh, it may be significantly uh, larger. From this roadmap, which came out uh, at the same time, Uh, I was searching the roadmap for every year it was coming out, and they were projecting it, and I waited. I always did a global search for the word ethic in it to see if I would get a hit. Uh, And in 2009, I actually got a hit, uh, which I'd like to think was hopefully spurred by some of the issues that I had been uh, arranging about, and they said, many aspects of the firing sequence will be fully automated, but the decision to fire will not likely be fully automated until legal rules of engagement and safety concerns have all been thoroughly examined and resolved. Uh, I pointed out to them that kind of said that, you know, it looks like you're saying that you will have these systems once we've do it, done that, and that language disappeared in the future uh, versions of the uh, uh, of the roadmap as well too, because perhaps a little oddly it sounds not optimistic, but in one way it is optimistic about its use. The Air Force, which projected out to 2047. That's 48 years, folks. Who makes a business plan for 48 years and expects it to hold? Uh, And the other one was 35 years or 38 years or something like that as well, too. That's nuts. I mean, you don't make plans for that, but they do. The military's always planning ahead for the war after next and other battles uh, downstream. And so they are, uh, and they were not to be outdone, obviously, by the army. uh, So they wanted to go even further uh, uh, in this particular uh, space. But they said things like authorizing a machine to make lethal combat decision is contingent upon political and military leaders resolving legal and ethical questions and ethical discussions and policy decisions must take place in the near term, rather than allowing the development to take its own path apart from this critical guidance. And the good news is that these discussions are ongoing. They're ongoing even at the United Nations as well, too, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And I had the honor to be able to uh, uh, testify in Geneva at the first Uh, experts meeting of the United Nations on the approach and the issues that I'm talking about. But a more recent one in 2016 uh, by the uh, JOE, which is um, trying to talk about the kind of system that we'll have, talked about making autonomous decisions and delivering lethal force, and also recognizing that it's maybe our opponents that will spur us on into developing autonomous systems. They're going to do it, so we better do it. I don't know if that's a good, a, a good rationale, but that's starting to seep into here. Uh, if the adversaries are gonna do it, we need to be able to do it as well, too. So that's the second issue which I'll talk about is the, or assumption, excuse me, that I'll talk about, which is the inevitability of lethal autonomous weapons. And I'll see, I'll even justify that further uh, in a bit. But as I mentioned, the discussion is ongoing. There's many different people in many different places Uh, Maybe 30 or 40 uh, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, have teamed up together. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the campaign against killer robots. There is a campaign. Some of you may have actually signed up uh, associated with that. Uh, um, The Human Rights Watch is one of the leading groups in that particular one. I was there for the first meeting at ICRAC I'm not a member of those. I don't support their particular platform directly. So, but the International Committee of Robot Arms Control started in Berlin in 2006 or something like that. I was there at the experts meeting. I was consulted. I suggested a moratorium as opposed to a ban which these NGOs go to and I still support a moratorium as opposed to a ban for reasons which hopefully will become apparent uh, as the talk goes on. The Department of Defense around the same time that that document was issued in the United States Uh, issued a directive saying that we are not going to, for 10 years, explore certain classes of systems uh, that are lethal autonomous systems. We are not going to, I shouldn't say explore, I should say we are not going to develop and deploy them. It doesn't mean we're not going to do research on those, but we're not going to develop and deploy them. And in five years, we'll revisit that to see if it stands out. I always call this a quasi-moratorium. It can be overruled by members in the Department of Defense, high-ranking levels. I always thought it would be hard to do when I saw the list of those, but then I recently asked a colleague of mine who would know how hard would it be able to get an overrule of that. Uh, They said, not too hard at all, uh, if you wanted to do it. So, exceptions may have been made already in terms of development, I don't know. And the United Nations, uh, for going on five years now, has had debates in Geneva uh, on uh, how, through the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, whether these systems should be banned or regulated the ngos argue for bans the countries right now are still grappling with as most of us are what is an, a lethal autonomous weapon in the first place we, we can't even agree with that some argue such as myself they're already here and they exist others argue they don't exist but we must ban them before they exist and this deals in some cases the difference between disciplines and Autonomous, autonomy means different things to philosophers, uh, philosophers, for example, such as free will and moral agencies. For those roboticists, I think, out there, you probably don't worry about whether your robot has free will uh, anytime uh, in the near term. So that's a different, a different uh, aspect uh, of things. Um, and so the definitions of this and another aspect, which is being still bandied about, is this notion of meaningful human control. What does it mean for a human to be in control of this? Well, we know a terminator didn't have any meaningful human control, right? That's, that was not <laughs> controlled in any way, shape, or form by human beings. But others may say, can we task us at a high level? Or others may say that a human being has to be made at every point a kill decision is made. So this is part of the, the trouble, trouble in trying to legislate and regulate these sorts of things. So uh, it's still moving forward, but there were supposed to be there was a group of governmental experts a gge which was appointed it moved to the next level at the united nations but this year they did not get enough money from the other nations to be able to hold the meetings that were supposed to be held in august so those were canceled maybe they'll hold them in november if they get enough funds so the nations that are members of that have to kick in sufficient bucks uh, to do that and that's been a little uh, discouraging in terms of trying to figure out how to regulate this technology, because folks such as myself, we believe that, you know, we can't just turn our back and let this go out unregulated in any way, shape, or form. Uh, We need to understand how to manage, at the very least, if not ban, uh, this technology. So why am I concerned? Uh, I am concerned about the slaughter of non-combatants. Uh, You saw in Raqqa and in Mosul, uh, the most latest uh, horrific numbers. More civilians are typically killed uh, than non-combatants in these sorts of things. Uh, The United States doesn't necessarily have a particularly good history, but other nations uh, as well too. Every war, every war is populated with atrocities. And atrocities are the killing of innocent non-combatants, the destruction of non-combatant property, Uh, and the killing of those who are otherwise, what's referred to as hors de combat, uh, which means they've either the killing of those that have been surrendered or or achieved non-combatant status by virtue of wound. So this goes on and on, you could find instances, but now we have CNN out there uh, and uh, photographers to be able to record these things, so we become a little more uh, cognizant of it. Uh, We had several things, uh, again, a CNN report here, which talked about the consequences, not so much for the, ba- uh, for the, the, the innocents that, or even the, non-combat- or the combatants that were killed here, but violations of war crimes here. And the notion of it putting your fellow service members at risk and hurting troop morale are those that maybe... It, can, it affects the way in which you can wage war as well, too. So that's part of the sell for the military to start to pay attention to the ethical consequences of that. And so the focus on noncombatants is really what I am concerned with. And I believe technology can, must, and should be used to reduce the likelihood of slaughter of noncombatants in the battlefield. Now, whether this is the way to do it or if there's some other way to do it is the debate uh, that we often have. Most of my colleagues will agree that we would like to see fewer noncombatants killed uh, in the battlefield if we can't stop, remember the assumption that we will continue to have war if we uh, continue to have war. If you can stop the war, that's even better. Uh, And uh, I hope you can, I I truly do, because no one supports uh, that. We need to be able to do that, we need to protect the innocent in the battle space, and we need to potentially have technology do that. And we have all this technology. How many programs do you know of that are concerned with the application of technology to reduce non-combatant casualties in warfare? That's the number I know as well, too. Okay, so uh, uh, they're not directly addressed with those sorts of things because what's the payoff? Uh, is it going to help you win the war? Uh, not necessarily. And so my counterpart is when my colleagues tell me we can't do it with this technology, I say, okay, tell me what you are going to do. Because to me, it is utterly unacceptable to continue to allow uh, the innocents to be slaughtered at the, the levels at which they are uh, with conventional or unconventional warfare. These are some of the uh, positions that I personally advocate, and I'm not telling you you should advocate them. That's part of the discussion as well too. This is just one roboticist happened to be speaking uh, today. I don't object to a ban, but I object to allowing the slaughter of noncombatants combatants uh, to continue at the level it is. So if we can find ways to reduce it, we need uh, to do that. Or if we can't do what I say. Much of what I talk about is still a research hypothesis. It hasn't been proven. The question is, can we do that? I argue that a moratorium is better than an outright ban because we cut off the research that could potentially lead to those savings of lives uh, if we come up with an outright ban this early uh, on. And this notion, again, of using technology to find ways to reduce the slaughter that human warfighters potentially do. Now, let me also say, I have the utmost respect. Uh, and I suspect you probably do too, for, your, for the warfighters, the, the soldiers that go out into the battle space and assume risk, in many cases on behalf of noncombatants. And they're not all bad, and many are indeed true heroic uh, in this particular case. But you will see that unfortunately there is a significant percentage that don't make the grade uh, in that case, and that results in less optimistic outcomes uh, that I would like to see. So I argue for regulation and not to make decisions based on Hollywood or other uh, versions as well Too of pathos arguments for those of you who are into argumentation. So the real thing is, as I also talk about the secondary uh, consequences of the use of of conventional uh, forces is we have all these different things which basically reduce the likelihood of success if you're engaged uh, in a war. And this is all underpinned by both just war theory and international humanitarian law. Okay? Those are the goals of these particular, or the uh, precepts underlying all this work. How can we make robots adhere to international humanitarian law uh, better? As I mentioned before, I argue as an assumption that lethal autonomy is inevitable. And why I say it's inevitable, at least by my definition, maybe not yours if you're a philosopher, but my definition, it's already here and it's been here for decades. Uh, Many roboticists will argue that a robot is as simple as a thing that senses and actuates within its environment. Indeed, in 1939 at the World's Fair in New York, there was a uh, a video and a show that was talking about how everyone will have a robot in their home uh, very soon. And that robot was a toaster uh, because it was able to sense uh, and actuate uh, and uh, uh, carry out your task with a simple push of a button as well too. Most of us don't think those are robots uh, right now, uh, but the definition is consistent with uh, what's the definition of artificial intelligence, which is the ever-vanishing horizon. Uh, as soon as we can do it, it's no longer AI uh, any longer. And if you'll see that with self-driving cars and other things as we move into that particular space. But uh, these systems already exist. The phalanx system, which is used to shoot uh, supersonic missiles that are coming out of the uh, Uh, launched uh, from an aircraft uh, 20, 30, 50 miles away uh, from a ship uh, and uh, approaches sea skimming uh, surface missile at uh, supersonic speeds, you have no time to ask the captain, 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 what should we do? So what the captain does is turn on the auto-mode operation before, if he's recognizing this threat exists, and then the system will automatically engage. It will not ask the captain if that's going to happen. The Patriot missile battery, uh, used for effect uh, in uh, the Kuwait uh, war, uh, has a system that... It has a, a human in the loop, so to speak, but the human in the loop is, once that system is turned on, a red light comes on, and the operator has nine seconds to push the button to turn it off to make a decision as to whether you're going to let that missile go through all the way and potentially uh, kill your enemy, or is that a friendly target uh, out there? Uh, Anecdotally, and said in front of uh, operators of these kinds of batteries, where it wasn't refuted, the rumor has it that there was never a time that that button was pushed in that entire particular conflict. And several British tornadoes, for example, were brought down uh, by friendly fire in this case. So are you gonna protect your side or not? That human is there, in my estimation, to be ultimately responsible, if you will, the scapegoat in the kill chain uh, associated with that, that yeah, there's somebody there. He should have pushed that button uh, in that case, even though we might not necessarily give them the adequate capabilities And this, to make that decision. And this is the real factor, this increasing tempo of warfare. Fighting is getting faster and faster, um, and that's a consequence of technology. We have less and less time to make decisions, so what effectively is occurring is decision-making is being pushed towards the tip of the spear, so to speak. In other words, the the weapon is starting to make the decision uh, more and more, and the person who deployed that weapon, uh, less uh, and less. These are the reasons where I view that, even if you argue that they don't exist yet, These are the forces that are going to drive it to exist. And some of my uh, counterparts in the NGOs argue, well, we should slow war down. And I say, good luck with that. Uh, uh, I don't know how uh, to make that happen. And Maybe we should slow it down. But then, should we go back to punching each other, not even using standoff weapons like a bow and arrow, or an artillery, uh, or an ICBM, as now the US is wrestling with uh, from its opponents? So this was the uh, rhetorical question. Uh, that I used uh, to uh, get my little tiny grant, as I mentioned, uh, uh, to begin with, I asked is, uh, should soldiers be robots? We have to dehumanize people to some extent to make them able to kill each other. People have a natural resistance, it's well documented, to killing each other and they have to be trained. It's okay, this is how you do it. And even then, it quite often doesn't take if you do analysis in the battlefield of how many actual killers there are or an aircraft and the like as well too. And should robots be soldiers? I used to say, could they be more humane, in the sense of, could they be more compliant with international humanitarian law uh, than human war fighters can? That was the underlying research thesis that I had, indeed that perhaps uh, they could. And I still believe that in many cases they could. And the reason why is that human behavior in the battlefield, at the very least, is extremely depressing, if not horrifying. Uh, I have studied my entire career in robotics, animal behavior in its natural environment is a basis for creating robotic systems. We're doing it now in a different project with the sloth and the slow loris, but that's a different talk uh, at some point for slow bots. But uh, we've done it for Ibo studying dog behavior uh, and frogs and toads and all sorts of different things. The most depressing stuff I ever did was reading about human behavior uh, in the battle space. But is it really that much of a surprise that unfortunately, given the stresses of warfare, even if trained, even if exposed, even if told this is how you should behave, even if told this is how you should behave, and, or if you don't behave this way, you're gonna be uh, court-martialed or sent to a war tribunal, people, a percentage, stray outside. The United States did a remarkable thing. And the uh, coming back from the uh, Desert Storm, I believe it was, uh, war, uh, or whatever the Kuwait conflict was called, uh, they did an evaluation of their mental health and their ethical behavior. This had never been done scientifically before. This was a scientific study where they surveyed those folks. They didn't ask, did you commit a war crime, because they're not going to answer that, but they asked, for example, um, aspects of this. Uh, Forty-five and sixty percent of Marines did not agree that they would report a fellow soldier-marine if he had injured or killed an innocent non-combatant. That's a war crime. They may not have known that, but that's a war crime. You have to uh, report those uh, particular things. Um, Would they report uh, for an an unethical behavior? All, uh, where was the one? 17% of soldiers and Marines agreed or strongly agreed that all non-combatants should be treated as insurgents. You're either with me or against me, uh, so to speak. And what kind of outcomes do you expect uh, with those consequences? And these are some of the reasons why. Human beings are human beings and at some level, I'm not faulting those people who do that. Who am I to condemn them when they're put into these circumstances and situations where their humanity fails them? It just fails them. They're not, we could try and train them better. Yeah, sure, we can train them better. Maybe we can reduce those numbers, but there will still persist. I've often said that human beings are the weakest link uh, in the kill chain uh, for these sorts of things. There's a whole variety of different reasons, ranging from uh, uh, revenge, anger, uh, poor experience. There's also one which deals with uh, the lust for killing uh, as well too, in certain ones as well. So people don't always do well, and this leads to the innocents often being slaughtered. Uh, some are accidental. I'm not saying they're all war crimes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everyone that kills a civilian is a war criminal, that's exactly wrong because international humanitarian law has and tolerates uh, civilian casualties. I'll talk a little bit about more of that if they're unintended, okay? They have to be unintended or accidental or or associated with the gains of a military end. So this is the question I've asked, again, isn't it important for us to find ways to reduce inhumanity to each other? And where is inhumanity more evident than in the battlefield? Really, where is it more evident uh, than in the battlefield where we are slaughtering each other and those around them uh, with impunity uh, quite often? And I believe that maybe we could do better. Um, These are some of the reasons. um, The notion of this argues that these systems may be the next generation of precision-guided munitions as well, too. So maybe we can do better if we allow them to make the decision than allowing the human to make the decision, which if we can show, and I don't argue for their deployment until we can show, that if they can produce better outcomes from a non-combatant casualty perspective, shouldn't we use them? There's deontologic, for those of you ethicists out there, there's deontological rights-based arguments which can be brought into this discussion, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as well, too. But they also have this notion of when not to fire, keeping in mind again that often the situation changes after a a cruise missile, for example, has been deployed. And by the time, 30 minutes later, it reaches its target, maybe instead of an empty bridge, there is a line of school buses on that bridge. Should the system itself, in that last few seconds, have the ability to abort uh, its target? Remember, this this is choice. It's not just choosing. Who, when to shoot, it's also choosing when not to shoot as well, too. Keeping humans in the loop at some level as well, too, but not necessarily at the immediate trigger pull level as well, too. And recognizing further that these systems can assume far more, far more risk on behalf of non-combatants than any human being in their right mind would possibly do because they don't have to be afraid of being destroyed. We could put that in them, but I don't think we should uh, uh, and the like so the research uh, thesis i had is that they can ultimately come up with better legal and ethical compliance with ihl uh, than human beings in these sets of circumstances research thesis okay not proven research thesis and uh, secondly that they will not be perfect they will kill civilians period okay there's no doubt about that they will kill civilians but can they produce better outcomes so this is those of you who have ethics backgrounds, this is a consequentialist argument uh, as well, too, that it is inherently better that a reduction in the number of casualties in innocent civilians, you can't erode mission performance, that's the other thing as well, too, because the military, I remember in my, one of my first talks in front, of, in front of a group of pacifists said, well, a truly ethical robot would throw down its weapon. Uh, uh, maybe so. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily have uh, these uh, underlying assumptions that warfare will continue. So can we better protect non-combatants uh, accordingly? So the goal was to give a robot the right of refusal. That's interesting the military funded that, but they're not always happy with that particular thought. Uh, it relates to kind of also the fear that you might get from the movie 2001. Sorry, Dave, I can't do that. Uh, kind of... Uh, role uh, with that. Could also monitor and behave, uh, monitor the behavior of those around you, the human beings that they're embedded with uh, as well. Reporting back, which might change human behavior, but also is very disturbing to something referred to as squad cohesion. The fact that this is a band of brothers and they rely on each other, and uh, you're not gonna tell on me if I don't tell on you sort of thing, which can potentially lead to, to bad outcomes. And incorporate the relevant, I should say relevant, existing laws and rules of engagement uh, for uh, these kinds uh, of systems that come from the Geneva Conventions and the rules of engagement. And the goal is not to embed the entire Geneva Conventions in these systems, that's not needed. What these are very narrow, mission-specific systems. And as they're mission-specific, they only need a small subset of those particular laws to be able to behave compliantly. And I'll talk about specific scenarios in a bit. So when I first wrote about this and was doing this, The Economist had a nice article. It was a very nice article, but they kind of captured this with this tongue-in-cheek picture of where do we plug in the ethics upgrade uh, for these kinds of systems, which is kind of really what I was trying to do. Uh, How do we ensure that these systems, when they fire, are compliant with IHL? not only with the human but also uh, without the human in this particular case and the reasons i'm optimistic hey you guys just won the amazon challenge congratulations uh, to those out there you should be very happy about that but progress is being made progress is being made on hard problems uh, that are going on in ai a lot of that is to be candid is not just due to ai it's due to advances in computational engines, it's due to advances in sensors, it's due to advances in material, but it's also the concomitant advances in new algorithms and the like as well too. And the rediscovery of older ones, such as deep learning and the like, uh, which was you new know, Cognitron by Fukushima many years ago and a new modification uh, of that. But anyway, so things are happening, and you saw the, all the stuff with uh, self-driving cars that's coming about as well too. People are saying, I don't know if it's true or not, that a child born today will never drive a car. Uh, and why are they doing that? Why are self-driving cars? Because human beings can't be trusted on the highway. They. It's drink driving here, right? It's not drunk driving. We say drunk driving. You guys do drink driving here. At least that's what I think I heard. Um, uh, uh, on, on the highways, uh, they get angry. I saw incidents of road rage as well too and the like as well too. They stray outside acceptable limits and the like as well too. The roads will be safer with these sorts of things. Well, maybe the battlefield may be safer as well too. It was interesting when Google started using arguments kind of paralleling the sorts of things that I was talking about uh, as well. I, Mentioned also that I argue that these systems need to be regulated. They need to be used and introduced into the battlefield if they are in controlled ways. This notion of bounded morality applies, which I was talking about earlier, that you use this in a very narrow situation, so that, like a building clearing operation or a border protection operation or a counter sniper operation, and you build in the morality that's necessary uh, to use that using a framework derived from deontic logic, uh, which is the logic of obligations, prohibitions, and permissions, uh, and the like, for these sorts of things. I also argue we should only use them not in the counter-sniper operations uh, that uh, are quite frequently, uh, I'm sorry, the counter-insurgency operations that we're uh, used to being engaged with right now where there are high populations of civilians, but rather high-intensity interstate warfare. And unfortunately, That's looking more and more likely uh, on a weekly basis as well too, or launch by launch basis, uh, if you will, uh, from North Korea. There are many other places as well too where these systems might flare up in interstate warfare. So I don't like it, I don't want it. I always say that I hope these systems will never ever have to be used, but if they are used, I want them to produce better outcomes for non-combatants alongside. I also do feel, a moral imperative to provide those young men and women which we are sending and probably you are sending into the battlefield as well too with the best technology uh, that's available to accomplish their uh, missions. And also a human presence must be maintained in the battlefield because the horrors of war are very, very real and we need to make sure we maintain that. Okay, so I'm just checking on time. So these are the reasons why I argue that ethical autonomy should be deployed autonomy in the sense that we actually give decision-making uh, to these robots to do that. One is that they can act conservatively, as I mentioned before, they can assume far more risk on behalf of the non-combatants. Ultimately, they will have more sensors that uh, are capable for human- than humans have to be able to cut through the fog of war and understand what's going on better and faster uh, as well too. We can engineer out those emotions uh, which cloud judgment, anger, fear, frustration, which have been documented, well documented, to show the uh, perpetration of war crimes associated with those. Other certain problems, such as scenario fulfillment, the discounting of new and incoming information uh, that may arise uh, from these sources that uh, needs to be uh, actually considered. Uh, Again, the Iranian airliner by the Vincennes was documented to uh, uh, suffer from that, and that's why that was shot out of the sky, unfortunately. Um, More sources from more places than any human being can do. What does a a fighter pilot do right now? When they get too much information, they shut off their displays uh, at this point in time because there's just too much going on and they get flooded uh, with that information. And as I mentioned before, the ability to potentially monitor what's going on in the battle space to ultimately produce a side effect of improving human behavior by knowing that they're being watched and will be held accountable for their actions. As you might imagine, I've been challenged on this point of view uh, over the years, and these are some of the questions, which we can go into more, if you like, uh, in uh, the uh, discussion period. Um, The responsibility, uh, who's to blame? Um, It's never the robot. It can't be the robot. It's always a human being. Uh, It might be the designer. It might be the manufacturer who didn't make it up to specifications. It might be the commander who continued to use them, not knowing uh, that it was effective, uh, and a variety of other places. The individual soldier as well, too the notion of uh, use ad bellum and just war theory. There's use ad bellum, which is the requirements for going into war uh, and use uh, in bello*, which are the requirements for fighting uh, within warfare. There are some that would argue that these kinds of systems would lead to adventurism, uh, that a nation who thumbs their nose at you, uh, you might decide, send in the robots and we'll kill them all. Uh, That's possible, but it's possible with any other form of technology as well, too. uh, Cyber warfare or other things. And the real question is, to me, this boils down to, should we stop research in military uh, technology? Maybe you think yes, Uh, maybe you think no. Think about the consequences of that and think about whether you, you want to maintain a technological superiority over a potential enemy, potentially as a deterrent as well, too. So these are hard questions, they're hard questions. Um, I mentioned squad cohesion, Uh, the sci-fi vision, I don't think is real, uh, but we can debate that as well too. Those that argue that refusing an order and the squad cohesion are the ones that the militaries object to, so I get arguments from both sides uh, of of this uh, as well. The notion of winning hearts and minds, uh, if your father was killed by a robot, would. You'd be more angry than if it was killed by a human being. Uh, There's also the dignity, having had this debate with a Human Rights uh, Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial executions, and uh, extrajudicial and summary executions, he argues that there is uh, a right to a dignified death. So it's not a dignified death if you're being killed by a robot i uh, killed by a flamethrower. I don't know if that's uh, particularly dignified uh, either or a variety of other aspects. And if you roll a robot through the door and it shoots you, uh, whether there's a guy standing uh, a 1,000 yards away that pulls the trigger or whether it's uh, autonomous and makes that decision itself is a debatable point. Um, and, uh, and so on. So we have all these different things that are going on. The way you do this is go back to international humanitarian law. You represent uh, military necessity. Uh, Uh, Humanity, unnecessary suffering, proportionality, making sure that the right weapon, the right amount of force is used uh, as compared to the uh, the wrong amount or overwhelming force, and be able to discriminate between uh, non-combatants. There's a long and rich history of humans uh, trying to legislate warfare, going back to uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, talking which are the roots of just war theory, which our president whether you believe it's useful or not. Obama, not our current president. Certainly not our current president. Uh, 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 Won the Nobel Peace uh, Prize uh, for early in his career. Um, These are the sorts of things that provide the basis. There's a formalization. I'm not gonna go into some of the technical aspects of action-based machine ethics. Uh, We use constraints in our particular system. But you have to understand between permissibility, obligation, and uh, the notion of forbidden, using variation of deontic logic. uh, Implementing this in this architecture which we developed under the grant, including uh, the ethical governor, which is the primary component, uh, named after uh, Watts' uh, ethical governor, and other aspects as well, too. There's other colleagues, I'm actually on a committee of a a gentleman at Canterbury right now, like services, it's not opponent here. I don't know what it is—is oral examiner or something like that in New Zealand, which I'll be going out and administering probably in uh, uh, September uh, as well too. Um, for all these different aspects, uh, and others are beginning to start, but it's still a relatively small community. The notion of how you engineer a human override into the system, both positive and negative, uh, the notion of denying. Uh, the negative one is easy, that's the big red button. You just push the big red button on the robot, and all robotics there's no big red buttons on, on robots. They've been getting smaller and smaller over the years. They used to be a whole lot bigger and, and a whole lot more different places. So the scenarios I want to talk about, this is the first one. We
2: have a story tonight that has to do with a single photograph. It's a surveillance photo taken in Afghanistan and obtained exclusively by NBC News. It's a photo of a gathering of Taliban fighters, but some say it shows more than that. Some say it shows what was a perfect opportunity to take out the enemy, but the military was unable to take the shot. The question is why. It was NBC News correspondent Kerry Sanders who obtained this photo exclusively. He reports for us tonight from Kabul. Brian, it took five days for the U.S. military to consider my request to declassify the photograph. It's a grainy, still image that shows what some here in Afghanistan say was a lost opportunity to inflict serious damage on the Taliban. Army intelligence officers say the photo shows 190 members of the Taliban at a funeral two months ago. The U.S. Army claims among those in the formation high-ranking members of the Taliban leadership an unmanned armed predator like this one was spying on the group intelligence officers monitoring the scene in real time wanted to fire they asked permission the request went to intelligence analysts senior commanders and lawyers intelligence officers were told no they were not allowed to fire why US rules of engagement do not permit waging war in a cemetery that was frustrating those individuals live to fight another day uh, potentially uh, could uh, cause harm to our soldiers uh, uh, civilians uh, the population of uh, government afghanistan despite frustration us military leaders here say the decision not to fire was the right one
1: Whether you believe that's the right decision or not, that's what the lawyers say should be the case. And whether that was the actual rule of engagement, not waging war in a cemetery or not, is not clear because rules of engagement are classified. Uh, It may have been for other reasons. But there is something called protecting cultural property in IHL, uh, which could do that. If you violate that, then you can be engaged. But just transpose that to the top of a hospital or inside a mosque, and they're all praying. You can't engage that target. And it's easy to put no-kill zones... A GPS locations as well, too. So if someone tries to pull the trigger on that, you can't pull the trigger. It's as simple as that. It's adding friction into the kill process. This is the refusal, if you want, to be able to do that. Another scenario is this one. Um, this is where, uh, it's a. I don't show this video because it's rather gruesome. Um, it's uh, called war porn or a brag video. It's, uh, it goes by various names. If you're curious, you can see it on the internet. Um, it's basically three uh, insurgents who were, uh, uh, planting improvised explosive devices out in the, away from everybody, um, by the side of the road. Uh, an Apache helicopter, which from a good standoff distance is quite quiet, uh, you can't hear it in that direction. Uh, it launched its, uh, it used its uh, cannon. It has a, a, a machine, a railgun cannon as well too, which has exploding shells uh, which hit. Uh, it engaged the first individual, uh, I was informed when I had this discussion with the military the very first time we saw this, um, which is an interesting story in itself, Um, and that individual was neutralized, is the way it's put. So that individual was neutralized. It was more like liquefied, but it was neutralized. Um, Then the second individual kind of froze. Uh, uh, They were, uh, they had, uh, uh, kind of didn't know what to do. Uh, The gunner uh, retargeted the sites and neutralized that individual. To me, those were, I guess, legal kills. Uh, they were you, they in charge is hostility or hostile intent, um, and so they could engage those. The third individual then climbed under the truck uh, at this point in time. And uh, the gunner then fired by the side of the truck, um, and remember the cannon shells. The individual then got out of, uh, from underneath that, walked about five meters, and collapsed uh, on the ground. And the transcript was here, uh, want me to take the other truck out. Uh, the other truck is a legitimate target if it contains wartime material. They were trying to destroy those uh, things as well, too. It said, wait for the move by the truck. Movement right here. Roger, he's wounded. Uh, the gunner uh, was reporting back uh, at that particular time. Whether it was to the pilot or whether it was to someone off base, I honestly don't know. Um, movement right here, he's wounded. And then without any hesitation, the commander uh, told him, hit him. The uh, the gunner was targeting the truck. Uh, The voice said, hit the truck and him. Go forward of it and hit him. Uh, That was retargeted to the wounded man uh, and uh, uh, finished off that individual. There's a likelihood that that individual would have died anyway, but there are prohibitions in the uh, laws of war which prevent the killing of those who have been declared wounded or or de combat. And this is not a whole lot different than if the commander had said, walked up to this guy with a gun and shoot him in the head uh, at that point in time. Just a standoff distance, which makes it kind of uh, different. To me, that this was an inappropriate action. I've spoken and talked about this in front of JAG lawyers on numerous occasions and asked, should my robot take that shot? And 99%, 99 99.9% of them said no. One of them, who actually was a very high-ranking JAG lawyer, and due to uh, um, Chatham House rules, I cannot say more uh, than that as well too, uh, debated that particular point. He said he should have taken that particular shot, but at least it was not mainstream thinking, which was encouraging to me. You cannot commit summary executions. What you're supposed to do, even if they can be recovered by the enemy, is allow them to be recovered um, and uh, not Uh, not just go ahead and execute them under these circumstances. So that's another case where a robot might be able to do better. And if it's parsed out that someone declares someone wounded, friction should be added to that process so that trigger cannot be pulled. I mentioned that this particular platform or variation of it was deployed in the DMZ uh, by uh, South Korea. Um, This uh, can see six kilometers out, I believe, uh, daytime, and two kilometers, no, at... And two kilometers at nighttime, the machine gun won't reach that far. So that's not an issue. But it can start to track individuals. Um, There's new variations of this. This was tested in the DMZ, but is no longer located there, uh, uh, according to the most recent information. Uh, The DMZ is a unique place. It has fences. It says if you're civilians, if you go in here, you will be shot. There is a line called the military demarcation line. It's kind of an imaginary line. It's not painted on the ground. But if you cross that line, you can be shot. It's as simple as that. That sounds like a legitimate use of an intelligent robotic system. This actually shoots at something that moves in this case. It puts a dot on the head of the individual, as you'll see in the next shot, so it could be able to take that individual out. And that's serious business, okay? I spoke to a colleague of mine who was a lieutenant in the Vietnam War, and he said his troops shot at anything that moved uh, in, a, uh, a, in the equivalent of a kill zone. Well, we could create a robot, now that could shoot at anything that moves. That's easy. Leaves, animals, everything that moves, as well too. We'd like to do better than that, uh, uh, as well, and uh, and so on. There are other scenarios I won't talk about, uh, but dealing with, as I mentioned, building clearing operations. I was here at Brisbane a year ago, giving us a, a, on a panel as well too at the World Science Fair uh, that you guys had as well too. They created this wonderful video from our really. Freddy laboratory uh, simulations as well too, showing uh, the operations uh, of that. And uh, this shows, uh, I won't have time, I'll let it run maybe at the end, uh, but it really shows how the system uh, kind of operates and uh, makes its decisions along the way to either engage uh, or not engage uh, targets. But before I do that, I wanna touch on a few bases. There's more data available. I don't want to give you the idea that this stuff is a solved problem. Far from it. There's lots of things left to uh, solve. I hope uh, roboticists will take on some of these challenging problems. Even the notion of benchmarks and metrics is important. Other countries have been considering the notion of ethical algorithms, although that was from a classified Israel report uh, as well, too, and how we can do better uh, through advisors or others. I talked just recently at the health workshop about how we leveraged some of this military technology into a healthcare uh, domain using an intervening ethical governor. Um, And if you just hate the thought of robots killing people, there's something in international humanitarian law which says that if it violates the dictates of the public conscience, it can be banned. You don't have to prove anything. You just really don't like it, okay? And that's one route that the NGOs uh, are taking no one really knows what the requirements of the public conscience is and even on the icr website they say there's no accepted interpretation of this clause so this remains this may be the first test case for this as well too if you want to ban but you could ban it just by the fact you don't like it so in summary again the status quo is unacceptable we need to resolve problems we need to be proactive ihl may or may not international humanitarian law may or may not uh need to be amended i believe in a moratorium but the most important thing is that scientists and engineers should not run from these particular problems. Your technology that you're creating here, those of you who are roboticists and the like, if it's any good, will someday be used somewhere, sometime, someplace in military technology. You have to be aware of that, okay? You have to come to grips with the fact that you're helping that stuff happen. And you could take the Bill Joy approach and say, I'm going to relinquish that and just not go do something else in some other area as well too. Or you can fully recognize that and try and be proactive in the management of that in some way. I'm not telling you necessarily the way to do it, but you need to be conscious uh, of that particular aspect. And uh, that's pretty much it. I hope I have a few minutes left for questions as well too. Um, the book I wrote on that particular project uh, is available. There's tons of papers that incorporate much of the book uh, on the website uh, as well too. This. Uh, uh, the, there's many other things I should have mentioned as well too. the Ibo- IEEE Global Initiative on Ethical Systems uh, and Artificial Intelligence, which is a community of multidisciplinary researchers trying to come to grips with not only this, but all the aspects of AI and how we can have, as hopefully not a dystopian future, but a potentially uh, better future through the use of this technology. If any of you are interested in that, there are hundreds of scientists and engineers already engaged in that. Uh, please let me know. I'm on the Executive Committee for that as well too, and I can point you uh, into those discussions. Thank you very much for your time.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at ife underscore qt and also on instagram at ife.qt we really hope you enjoyed this ife podcast